This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What's going on, everybody? I'm Mara. And I'm Tez. And welcome back to Sisters Who Kill. Tazzy, what are the young folks calling it nowadays? Being the Lulu? Hey, Mr. Lulu. If you're listening to this, you probably already know what I'm about to say, that today is the day for you to start your podcast. You have everything that you need, your computer, a little microphone, and Spotify for podcasters. It is the all-in-one platform where you can host, edit, and record your podcast and distribute it everywhere. Where you're listening right now, you can have your podcast there. I promise, for real. And it's free. And you can make some money off of your podcast for free. Free money. Free money is out there. Just go get it by starting your podcast today. Our players this week are Jerry Wheeler, our victim, and Sahara Fakir, our murderess. Sahara Tabriz Fakir was born in 1981 to her mother, Barbara, in Twinsburg, Ohio. Now, they're originally from Ohio, but actually Sahara moved down to Georgia in 2006 with her mom, and that's where she was living. So she was roughly 25 years old at the time. Now, there wasn't much that we could find out about her background, if she had a criminal record as a child or anything like that. But we do, we did stalk her Facebook page. We saw what we could find, but most of those posts were from when she was an adult. But we do know that she was a devout Muslim. She talked about Allah a lot. And one post that was dated May 9th, 2012, she said, quote, just patiently waiting for the big day Allah has promised to give. We're not sure what she was talking about but that post was about a year before this story takes place now according to facebook also she was currently studying forex training and she said that she was studying at quote in due time but we tried to click the link from her facebook page and it took us to a band and this band is a funky band that gets you dancing drinking and thinking so i mean this is facebook this is her facebook page that's all i can give you guys Now, when she was snapping back at people on Facebook, she would say things like, whatever, my God is greater than yours. Atheists and Satanists, don't worry. No salam for you. Like we said, she was extremely religious. She was very devoted to her faith, and she was a member of the Custodians of Faith. According to a few articles, they said that she actually was a pretty productive member of society. She wanted to give back. That's also one of the pillars of Islam, I believe, is giving back to the community, giving back to those that are less fortunate. She would go out and feed the homeless occasionally. She was really close with her friends and her family. They said that she was loved by everybody that was around her. Her community actually really loved her. The people at the homeless shelter knew her because she came to volunteer often. One article that we read described her as a free-hearted, free-spirited, loving individual. And she was the type of person that loved going outside. Nature was a big thing. She liked to go out for walks. 
and she loved animals. They moved down to Atlanta. They were in Douglas County. So Douglasville is on the whole other side of Atlanta, west side, far. If anybody said they live in Douglasville, everybody else is saying, damn, why you live out there? If that puts it into perspective for you guys. But one thing that she was openly very against was Freemasonry practice in Douglas County. So she would go around saying that everybody that practiced Freemasonry was going to hell. She was saying that everybody in the government, people that were part of the Freemasonry were demonic. She loved a conspiracy theory. She said that they were reptilians, if y'all are into those conspiracy theories. And she was serious about it. And she believed that the judicial system was corrupt because of it. She did get into a string of trouble. In 2009, her weight began to pick up and it presented her with challenges in her everyday routine and with her faith. This woman was no small woman. I mean, in a physical stature, she's 6'2", over 400 pounds, and it's weighing on her body. Physically, she's starting to lose mobility in her knees and on the religious side of it she's struggling because she feels like she's committing the sin of gluttony she felt that she was in this constant battle and obsessed over it and it began to enrage her and her hate for law enforcement I can get like being frustrated over gluttony because I will pick I will binge and be like why did you do that your stomach hurt you don't like the way you look like that like why are you doing that I definitely have struggled with that. Like, I will get in my own way and say, we need to be serious about our lifestyle changes. We need to be serious about what we're going to eat. And as soon as something upsets me, I'm going straight for a Kit Kat bar. You know what I mean? And not just one, like a normal person. Like, like size times two. I want all the cakes, all the brownies. The same year, she had multiple traffic-related incidents and even went as far as committing check fraud. In one instance, she got a ticket had to pay a fine, failed to pay the fine, was put on probation, and ended up being detained by the court because I guess she just didn't want to follow any of the steps that they provided for her. After this, she starts to become more vocal about her conspiracy theories, insisting that this was only happening to her because she was a Muslim. When she was on a misdemeanor probation, she threatened to kill her probation officer and said that she would actually cut her throat and then was charged with felony terrorist threats in which she was convicted and got five years probation but she only spent 130 days in jail. So I have two questions. One, niggas are getting terroristic threats and you only get five years probation committed on that shit. I definitely thought they would have hiked it up more. But why is it only... it y'all, y'all find it so easy to put a Muslim person or a person of color, and I'm not even necessarily saying black, but like a person of color or a Muslim person, it's so easy for y'all to throw these terroristic charges against them. Meanwhile, these white people are walking down the street saying, I don't like the way you look, shooting niggas up, killing fucking kids in school, and they're just misunderstood. At some point, she violates her probation. Of course, a warrant was put out for her arrest, and she's just continuously playing this game. In 2012, in an attempt to lose weight, she signed up for swimming lessons at the aquatic center for three and a half months, and her daily exercise was swimming for an hour and a half to two hours, which is a great exercise. And it's easy on the body. She put herself on a strict diet, eating no processed foods, no soda. She ate fresh foods, but she wasn't losing any weight. And she could not understand why. She's eating right. She's exercising five days a week. What is the problem? And so she began obsessed with her weight. Like, first of all, yes, it is. But it also could be, it also could be medically related, like a thyroid issue or PCOS Mm -hmm. that makes it hard for you to lose weight. Like 
Sometimes you can do all the diet and exercise you want, but there's an imbalance in your system that you might need actual medical assistance with. Yeah, so was she actually seeking that medical assistance? Right. Or was she just beating herself up for it? And these strict diets, I'm sure they're hard to stick to. Working out five days a week, I'm sure it's hard to stick to. And to stick to a diet and not see any results, there's nothing more frustrating. Right, and also I think it was affecting the fact that she wasn't able to work at the time because she was... Her weight and her mobility was getting really bad. Just sitting around, just waiting for change. It's frustrating. It'll drive you insane. And it was driving her insane. She's in a cycle now. Overeating, feeling like shit about it, trying to work out, trying to eat better. And then feeling like she's punished by Allah for her shortcomings. Like, of course I'm having mobility issues. She's really beating herself up. I'm being this fat-ass pig, and so Allah is punishing me with this. And I can't control my eating, so Allah is punishing me with this. She's really spiraling. And then how do you pick yourself up from these things, from these hurtful feelings? Yeah, eat. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah, it really is. So at the house that she lived at with her mother, she had a neighbor. And in that neighborhood, they actually had a few neighbors. There was like a halfway house for boys that was down the street, but they had a nice neighbor next door. And his name was Jerry Franklin Wheeler. Jerry Franklin Wheeler, he was a grandpa at this time. He was born February 2nd, 1947 in Carrollton, Georgia, to his parents, Roy and Edna Kennedy Wheeler McWerther. Damn, that's a white ass. I was just about to say that. Man, that's a white Georgia name if I ever heard I'm one. I'm telling you, it was... <laughs> That McWerther really topped it off. It's something that you already had the Wheeler, but to throw McWerther on the end. When he was a child, both of his parents divorced and married other people, but he ended up marrying his wife, Jean Wheeler, in 1970, and they ended up having two children together: a daughter, Michelle, who was born in 1972, and a son, Michael, that was born in 76. They had four grandchildren in total, and I think I heard that all the grandchildren were Michelle's. So I know Michelle had a daughter. I know she had twin boys. And Michelle used to be like, my brother doesn't have any kids. So I used to say that the twin boys are his. Like, these are your sons, okay? <laughs> That's what it would be. Like, you ain't got no kids? Welcome to Uncle Hood. Mm-hmm. Uncle Daddy. Mm-hmm. Now, Jerry was known as a very hardworking man. And he loved his family. He loved being around them. And he was one of those people, you know, a man don't work, he don't eat. And he worked. He owned his own business, which was a mechanic shop called Lee Road Auto. Right before he opened the shop, he was working for different mechanics around the area. And his problem was, I'm there from sunup to sundown. I don't get to set my own hours. I have this family to take care of, my wife, my two kids. Now I got grandkids in the mix. I want to spend time with them. So he decided that he was going to open up his shop. And his kids said it didn't matter. Like, if he wanted to go take his wife out for dinner, close the doors. If he knew that there was a a recital or something for the grandkids, it's all right. We're closing up shop. And he enjoyed having that freedom as well as being able to make a really good living at the same time. And I think that's what it's all about, right? Trying to find something that that really gives you that balance. Exactly. Jerry had really established himself in the community. He said, I can't stand being with these people. I love these people, but I always can't stand being with these people. You know that person that you go and no matter where you go, they know somebody? Oh, it's my grandmother on my mama's side and my granddaddy on my daddy's side. Oh, yeah, girl. You're definitely a granddaddy. No matter where you go, they know somebody. There was this dude in college. His name, his nickname was Fats. Everybody called him Fats, but his real name was Antonio. I don't think he cares about his real name being told. But, I mean, he ran Norfolk. Like, not even that. He was just one of those. He was from there. He's the nice guy that you love to be around. He can dance. He's 
always like swagger always i mean we he asked me to take him to walmart to get some fucking toilet paper and we were in walmart for three minutes and each minute was somebody new i'm telling you i said i can't be out with you hey i just remember being younger and it was just stop whether they knew her from church or from her teaching like oh your grandma changed my life and i'm like okay we're just at walmart i'm trying to get back to the crib yeah, as a kid, it doesn't seem like anything to you. But when you're older, looking back, like, wow, my grandma, my granddad, really my affected people, people. Like, I'm around good people. I'm a gr- around good stock. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, Jerry, in 2013, he was diagnosed with venous reflux, which is not acid reflux. What it does is it causes blood to pool in his lower extremities. So, like, you would see his, you know how you can see folks' veins and they'd be blue and you can really see them. The veins in his legs would randomly pop and he would just start bleeding one day. He was working on the car and he was standing there next to him. He was standing in a pool of blood. He didn't know what happened. His son didn't know what happened. Like it just, it's random. And his, I guess your veins are getting a little bit weaker. Sahara was a neighbor to the Wheelers, right? And she, I guess, would see them around. And she actually, from her house, had a direct view into their house, right? And that's about the only connection we can make between them. Don't know of any bad blood between them. They didn't run into a supermarket and somebody stole her parking spot or something. Just neighbors. One day, June 18th, 2003 to be exact, Sahara is going in and out of this manic episode all day, it seems. We don't have any record that she was diagnosed with anything, but as the story goes on, y'all will start to question She's dealing with her emotions. There's the eating. There's the cops. There's the hatred. And later that evening, she ends up with a large knife in her hand and makes her way to Jerry's house. Now, Jerry's at home by himself because his wife had just gone on vacation with her sisters. And he's whipping him up some dinner, making him some turnip greens. To Jerry's surprise, she just up and attacked him, began stabbing him repeatedly with this knife and struck him upside the head with a vase. I can't tell you how everything plays out because if you ask her, she didn't do it. Now around 2 p.m., the 911 dispatcher gets a call from their own police officer, Michael Wheeler. He's calling 911. He says to send an ambulance to his mom and daddy house. He said, I think my dad is dead on the floor. Now, Michael has been with the sheriff's department for some time. They all know him there. He's one of the good old boys there. I think he works undercover a bit because on Snap, he didn't want his face shown. But I felt like I could tell exactly what that man looked like. Yeah, you could. You knew that big ass head from anywhere. With that scruffy ass beard. But also he looked like a regular white guy. So they know him. So the officers hear that one of their own's dad is supposedly dead. They got to get there quick, fast, right? So the deputy arrives at the Wheeler house and they find Michael standing outside waiting for them. And the police noticed that he had a very calm demeanor. Michael told them that he tries to make time to spend with his dad, so he usually comes by to have lunch with him. But when he went in the house, he could feel that something was completely off. He's yelling out, Dad, where are you? And he's getting no response. He begins to walk through the house and steps on a rug, and you could tell that there was... I doubt he stepped on this rug, right? Like, as soon as you see the rolled rug. No. He was walking around. He saw that the rug was rolled up. He's probably somebody that's like me and can't help but to walk on a puddle, can't help but to put step where you ain't supposed to step. 
he stepped on the rug. And when he put pressure on his foot, he said, oh, no, there's a body under here. But if there is a body there, wouldn't it be a good foot above the ground? Yes. Like, that is a step. I'm just, I under, I thought the same thing while we were researching this, friend, but that's what every, that's what everybody say. That's, it this, came out of his mouth. This man stepped on a rug, and from stepping on this rug, he could tell that there was a body inside. Now, I just don't understand why you would step on a rolled-up rug, personally. But okay. Probably do it. I'm not going to lie. You probably would. But I don't know. If it's out of place. It's also just, okay, there's the rolled-up rug, and there's the fact that there is blood all over this room. There's blood everywhere. So, in this rug, he notices that his dad is inside of it rolled up. So, he tells the deputies that he thinks his dad has died of natural causes and said that he probably wrapped himself in the carpet to keep himself warm. And then the 911 call, like when he called 911, he was just like, yeah, I think that my dad is dead on the floor. Yeah, like, You come to visit your parents every day. <laughs> He's like, dad kicked the bucket. Somebody send someone over here so you can start the process. He's just, he's not showing of being incredibly upset or anything like that he is just like it's business his thought process behind his dad dying of natural causes is he had this reflux thing which caused his veins to pull like Mariah said and at least one time before the vein has literally popped out of his leg to the point where he found himself standing in a puddle of blood so michael's assumption is that a vein has popped spewing blood everywhere and because of the blood loss his dad got cold and thought let me wrap myself in the carpet in the rug on the floor and ended up dying slowly inside of the rug as he bled out that's michael steary this trained officer streaming october 6th on paramount plus first place i learned about death was a pet cemetery dead things buried in that land would come back there's something else. Something's wrong with Timmy. He needs time to adjust. That's not Timmy. Something's talking through him. Sometimes dead is better. Pet Cemetery, Bloodlines, Rated R, streaming only on Paramount Plus. Instacart helps you get beer and wine delivered in as fast as an hour. So, whether you need to fill the cooler for tailgate season or Fill your glass for Pinot by the fire season. You can save time by getting fall sips delivered in just a few clicks. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Must be 21 or over for alcohol delivery where available. Instacart. Add life to cart. The police take what Jerry say and they look at the crime scene and they're like, no. Like this scene is extremely gruesome. Like, extremely gruesome. I mean, there is blood everywhere. There was clearly a struggle here. And there was clearly a fight. Like, it wasn't some he got attacked. There's blood everywhere. Things knocked over. So, him and Sahara was in there duking it out. And they're like, there's no way that this was a natural death. When they unroll the carpet, they see that he is stabbed on his face his neck there's defensive wounds on his hand and all in all he had 15 to 16 stab wounds and head trauma because she took a vase and hit him over the head 
initially when the police see this, they're like, okay, so he was in here. It had to, we're looking for a, a male suspect, suspect. This was a clear fight. They were like, okay, whoever the perpetrator is, they must have stood about six feet tall. If you're comparing that person to Jerry, whoever Jerry was fighting was at least equal in stature, if not a little bit bigger. And then police find something that they are so excited about, their first lead, and it's a good one, a bloody footprint inside of the home. And it's not a boot footprint. It's not a shoe footprint. It is a bare footprint. And you know how they our fingerprints are all individual? Our footprints are all individual. So now the police are like, okay, we have something to work with. It was a bloody footprint, like a footprint, not a shoe print. That was, I said, you, and she looked like the type. She was outside barefooted. I can stand being outside barefooted. Walking through blood barefooted. That's where you got me. Now, when they go outside, they see Jerry's car and Jerry's car is there. And they're like, okay, where are his car keys? One of the police officers look up and they're like, oh, his keys are hanging from the tree right here. Now, remember, Jerry was a mechanic, so I guess he rigged his car in a certain way, and maybe he had to do a certain little ditty to get it turned on, or maybe it just wasn't working. But from what it seemed, the attacker, Sahara, went, grabbed his keys after the fight, tried to start the car, could not start the car, panicked and threw them before leaving, which is wild, girl. Like, I guess she thought that was a pretty decent plan. Just throw the keys. You just didn't expect that they were going to get caught in the trees, I guess. Okay. Right. And also when they looked in there, there was blood on the steering wheel. So clearly the person was covered in blood while trying to start this car. Mm -hmm. Now, at first the police are like, is this a domestic type of situation? Number one rule, look at the family first. First thing they do is go to his wife, Jean. And Jean's like, listen, this is my first time going on vacation without him, like ever. And initially that sounds a little suspicious. This is your first time going on vacation without him ever. And he winds up dead. Like, is that what happened? And they were like, absolutely not. She had witnesses. She was clear pretty quickly, right? Then they go to the son, Mr. Officer Michael. And now, Michael, you're a little too cool, calm, and collected for me. Michael, we've all heard the initial statement of what he thought happened. That's already a crazy thought. So they bring him in. They start questioning him. And he's cool as a cucumber. Did your parents have any enemies in the neighborhood? No. Did you and your dad ever not get along for a period of time? No. Okay, listen, Michael, you're an officer, so you know what's happening right here. We're asking you these questions because we know that we have to rule out the family first. You understand that, right? He's like, yeah. And everybody's like, why does he seem like he doesn't care? Like, if anything, you're an officer. And they're like, you're not giving us nothing. Like, you're not crying. You're not emotional. This is your dad that you said that you love so much. Is he the person that did this to his own father? And so they're asking him more questions. And finally, he was like, my parents have had a couple of run-ins with them boys down the street. And even at one point, one of them boys tried to steal their car. One time when my mom was in there, she was downstairs. One of the boys actually broke into the house, saw her. They didn't do nothing. They saw her, got spooked and ran away. But, you know, them boys be acting up. What boys, you ask? The boys down at the halfway house for juvenile delinquents in that neighborhood. So they go there before they get released. And so these are teenagers and their house is an easy target. And so the detectives are like, all right, here's something that we can work with. They head out to the juvenile house and they talk to the boys that are there. The police head up to this house looking to talk to the house manager, but they're met by three boys who are living at the house at the time. And they're like, no better place to start than here. So they start digging in. What was y'all doing this night? Y'all not had any trouble in this neighborhood? 
Now, two two out of the three boys got alibis right off the rip. But the third boy, he's 14 years old. Name is Lil Reginald. And he's really feeling like fuck the police. He's acting defiant. He ain't giving up no information about where he was. He ain't giving them nothing. And the cops are like, okay, this is an identity. But I liked it for him. Of course, Reginald would be in, in trouble. So the police are finding this very suspicious. They don't have any evidence to put him at the scene of the crime. But why you can't just tell me where you was at? Because I don't trust you. There have been several little bad boys arrested for things they did not do because it just made sense to you and your little head. The police are like, okay, we don't got nothing on now, but let's keep him as a person of interest. They go around to other neighbors asking if they remember anything from the night of Jerry's murder. And one says they remember seeing a large woman walking up and down the street late that night. Now that woman was Jerry's neighbor. The police go and talk to her and she introduces herself as Tabriz Tool. Tabriz was a noticeably larger woman. The cops are like, hey, your neighbor said that they saw you out walking on this night of the murder. Care to say what you were doing? She says, yes, I was exercising at night. She goes on to explain that she likes to exercise at night because she's ashamed of her weight and doesn't want nobody to be like, oh, look at her walking out. People can be so cruel. So she just tries to do it while not too many people are out. And the police are like, sounds reasonable. Have a nice day, ma'am. Now, the footprint at the crime scene is done being analyzed, but, of course, there's no database for footprints. So the police have to go based off potential suspects, trying to see if they can get them to voluntarily take a print of their feet. Now, from this footprint, they knew that this person wore a size 10 and a half shoe. The detective was like, okay, a person with a 10 and a half foot is probably on the heftier side. So they go back to the halfway house. They get footprints from the boys. They get footprints from Michael. Nothing matches. And they're like, damn, that's everybody who we had our eyes on. So they go back to brainstorming and they're like, okay, listen, we found bloody footprints at the crime scene. They tried to steal Jerry's car, failed, and was still able to get away. So they probably live close by. But they're coming up short. They're like, who could it be? And you know what I think their issue here is? I think they're looking for a man, just like based off of average feet size. If you're looking at a 10 and a half, it's probably. A guy. Right. That's that's a men's right. 12, which I feel like a lot of guys are in that 10 to 12 range. And so they're like, I don't know, we're fucking stuck. So on June 25th, a week after the murder, the family offers a $10,000 reward to anyone who can give information that leads to an arrest. The case gets stalled for about a month. There's no leads. The cops are clueless as to where to look, who to look into. They don't know. Now, July of 2013 comes around and the detectives are comparing notes let's fresh minds let's go back think about what's going on okay and they realize that the woman who they interviewed for exercising at night lived in the area check was noticeably big check and it was like you know she probably is a 10 and a half so they start to dig a little deeper on who she might be even though they had already eliminated her as a suspect so they run her name Tabriz Tool. The entire county database comes up short. Nothing. We don't have anybody here under this name. So they're like, oh, so she gave us a false name. Now that's suspicious. And that's a good reason for them to go talk to her again. And they decide, okay, let me look up this address real quick. And of course, they can see who lives there. So they're like, let's look up the name Sahara Tabriz. So they look up Sahara Tabriz Fakir. That's what USPS says lives there. So 
we're looking in Sahara's background and they're like, oh, okay. All the things that we already know oh, from Ohio, moved to Georgia about six years ago. Looks like she doesn't have a job according because the police can look up all of your things. Looks like she doesn't have a job. It's bringing out the Ron Swanson in me. Like, and too I much information like I need on all me. of my mail to go. Yeah, like I need my mail to go to a, a P.O. box. You know, people else. do like, that. Ron Swanson is coming out of me hard. And they're looking up everything. They're like, okay, we can see from her ID what she looks like and that she's a little bit on the heavier side and that she doesn't have a job. Okay. And it looks like she was on disability. Like that's how she was making money because they can look that up as well. They have all of your records. They can, the government knows everything about you. They know more about you than you know about you. Okay. And then when they look at her criminal records, they're like, oh my goodness, look at there. There is a warrant out for her arrest right now, right now, right now. And so no wonder she gave them a fake name because she didn't want to get arrested right then and there. So they're like, okay, she fits the physical description. Check. I mean, they're doing detective work. You hear me? Physical description. Check. I've looked up all of her history and she seems like the type of person now based off of her history that would do a crime like this. Check. And gold star at the end, outstanding warrant. Let's just go pick her up. We can legally arrest her. So they do. On July 16, 2013, the officers attempt to arrest Sahara at her home for giving a fake name. And because, and y'all, when I tell you this girl put up a fight, she was in there. They said they tried to arrest her. She picked up one of the detectives, slammed him down. It took like three, four niggas to come and get her. Like, they were trying to zip tie her. They had to, she was putting up a fight. She ain't come to play they with said, y'all. Okay, they said, yeah, she may be big, but let me tell you, wrong. Okay, <laughs> she gave us all. I know them old white men. She gave them a run for their money that day. Okay? So they arrest her. They finally get her detained, and they transport her to the Douglas County Sheriff's Office. And when they bring her there, automatically put her in solitary confinement. I have a problem with that. Just, she didn't get to go to a hotel and talk to somebody else. And they then take her from solitary confinement, and they sit her into an interrogation room, and they start asking her about Jerry Wheeler. Do you know your neighbor, Jerry? I've seen him. Okay, have you ever been over to the house? Have I ever been over to the house? No. So they tell her Jeffrey was just murdered. He was stabbed and we're looking at you for this. And she's like, mm-mm, that's horrific. I couldn't see myself doing anything like that. I can't see myself doing a lot of stuff I've done. And she's like- Let me tell you something. Listen, she said, I can't see myself doing anything like that. She was like, listen, I stay in the house. I don't really do nothing. I don't really go nowhere. I'm a big girl, so I don't even like to be outside like that. The only time I leave my house is at night. I go on my little my walks at night because I don't want nobody to see me. And I signed up for swim. She started just gossiping with her. I signed up for swim classes. So I've been swimming three and a half laps every day. And, you know, I still can't. I'm walking up and down. I'm trying to do everything. And I'm still not losing any weight. I'm still not losing nothing. So, no, I couldn't see myself doing that at all because this is what I'm focused on over here. The detective talking to her, and I'm telling you, she is she's talking about everything but Jeffrey. They don't have, they can't really do much. They don't have a confession. She didn't outright say she did it. They don't have any hard evidence yet. Then they ask her, okay, you're his neighbor. We just want to clear you up. Will you give us a footprint sample? And she's like, a footprint sample? I don't know about all that. That would catch me off guard, too. Right. Like, I'm sure that she you did not. You want more records about, on Right. You want a footprint sample. And she's like, no, you can't have no footprint sample. And they're like, listen, we just, that's the only thing that we have linked to the crime. We just, we can clear this up right now. It'll be over with. She said, how about we do this? I'm not putting no ink on my foot and having it on a record, but you can bring in a foot expert to come check me out. So they bring in the foot 
footprint fingerprint specialist. They check out her feet, compare it to the sample that they have, and it's a match. Now, while all this is going on, detectives are working to get a search warrant for Sahara's house, who lives with her mom. I can't really verify this, but according to this Muslim-based article, an investigative report came out saying that an employee of Jerry's mentioned a possible enemy that he could have. They witnessed this guy come into Jerry's shop and accuse him of having an affair on his wife. And Jerry's response was, yeah, and it was good, which, wild. But Oh, Jerry! <laughs> wild. You're supposed to be the family man. We don't man. know if this is true or not. We don't know if this Ooh. is true or not. But, and this was never mentioned at trial, so I feel like the trial's a different story. But also, I'm petty enough. You come at me like that, even if I didn't do it, I'm petty enough to say I did. And that's the problem. This article also says that when police searched her and her mom's house, children were held at gunpoint while adults had to stand outside for hours. And so, again, wasn't able to verify this, but that's what they said. That's what they had said. Now, the first thing that they noticed about Sahara's room is that out her window, she has a very clear view of Jerry's house right here in her bedroom window. And now in this room, she has a mattress on the floor, a desk that is super crowded, bunch of journals on them. And each of these journals are full. Like, she journals. The girl writes. The journals are taken in for evidence. They continue to search, and they find an 11 and a half inch knife wrapped in a bed sheet hiding underneath her mattress. They add that to the evidence back to it, and they take it in. Crime scene investigators take this knife apart, and what do they find? Traces of Jerry's DNA. So, on July 17th of 2013, Sahar is officially charged with the murder of Jerry Wheeler, and she's also charged with burglary and armed robbery. Now, along with Jerry's family, the detectives, the whole police department, they're relieved. They're like, yes, we finally caught this person. We finally have a suspect for Jerry's murder. They're happy. But still, they're wondering, what is the motive? Why did Jerry have to die? Because this crime scene was gruesome. Like, they're looking like this must be personal because this crime scene is nasty. Like, definitely start with the family first. Somebody knew this man, and this man has made somebody very upset, right? So they're like, what is it? So they go back to Sahara, and they're telling her that they know she was in the house and they're just like why why'd you do it and she is insisting that she has never been in this house before she said i didn't this is crazy and this is where the interrogation starts to take a turn right so the detectives are like what if i say somebody saw you at mr wheeler's house on the day of the murder and she replies they were probably working for the illuminati and from this point on the police are like maybe she has mental health issues and we might need to treat her delicately then they ask her what would happen to her now that she's been arrested. And she says, Allah will get me out because he knows the type of people that's running this courthouse. He knows the type of jail this is. This is Satan's jail. And she kept on going, saying, I seek refuge in Allah from Satan, the outcast, and I am awaiting his wrath. And at this point, the detectives are like, listen. Waiting for the sky to open up. You is she even? Bush. What are you waiting on? Is she even going to be fit to stand trial? Because right. none of this stuff is even making sense. So the detectives dig a little deeper, right? And they're like, okay, let's look at her journals. Remember Ty said that they were really full. So they start sifting through her journals. She's still detained in Douglas County at the time. And they see that her journals, and she has a couple of Qurans, 
they're just filled to the brim with sticky notes, but it was the content of almost everything that they read. Most of the journals she was writing basically were full of self-hatred. She talked about her weight. She talked about how she felt when she looked in the mirror. She talked about how she thought that she was a disappointment. And these are journals filled. And if they weren't talking about her weight or downing herself, she was talking about law enforcement and downing law enforcement and her general just hatred for them. One of the entries, it said, quote, law enforcement authorities. Thank you for providing me with the full names and addresses of all wicked law enforcement authorities whom you want me to kill in the name of Islam, end quote. And there was literally a list of cops that she wanted to kill. Imagine being at the station and be like, am I on the list? Right. Am I on the list? Oh, Lord, she's got my number. Right. And they're like, okay, we really think that she's our girl. She's the person. She had a clear view of the house. And so now they're thinking, okay, this is starting to make a little bit more sense, right? They know, she knows the relationship of Jerry and his dad. She sees them a lot. She has a clear view of their house. Maybe she went over there and killed Jerry, but thought that she was going over there to kill Michael, whom she knows is a real police officer. And we don't know what made today be the day, but that was the day that she decided to come over there and murder him. So now it's time for the hearing. The detectives think that they have a good case, but she's got to go say guilty or not guilty. She goes, stands in front of the judge. She has no lawyer. Of course, the judge is like, would you like the court to appoint a lawyer for you? You have that right. She said, no, Allah will be my lawyer. And he's like, are you sure? She said, yes. When they gave her the court-appointed attorney, they, she was like, no, I don't want him. They're like, why are you trying to fire your court-appointed attorney? And she's like, religious reasons. The judge starts reading her charges and she's like, are you kidding me? She can't believe it. Like, are you, is this what you're charging me with? And the judge asked her, do you understand everything that is happening? And she said, in a Masonic courthouse, yes, yes, I understand that. I understand that this courthouse is a cursed courthouse. I understand. And if you're judging me and you're not God-fearing, Allah will have his vengeance on you and everyone else in here not God-fearing. I understand that. And the judge is like, okay. He was like, do you want another court-appointed attorney? She said, I am my lawyer right now. Allah is speaking through me. He is speaking through me. I am my own lawyer right now. And he was like, so you're not going to get a lawyer. You don't want another lawyer. You don't want a court appointed attorney. She said, Allah is my lawyer right now. And if you don't release me, Allah will have his vengeance on you. Just like he did in 2009 when he sent that flood. Only it's going to be worse. I had to look up what the flood was in 2009. And nobody knows. found something on Google. Okay. I thought it was that time that we didn't have school for a week because it rained. Remember in the old school building, the basement used to flood. But that couldn't have been 2009. That had to have been 2010, 2011. Because that's when Uvu was out. You remember that? Do I remember Uvu? The 2009 Southeastern United States floods were a group of floods that affected several counties from North Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, and Arkansas. The worst flooding occurred across the Atlanta metropolitan area. I guess we had a flood. I guess so. And so the judge is like, okay, you have a right to the lawyer. And she's like, I mean what I said. The judge is like, listen, I just need to inform you of your rights. And she said, no, no need. I better be released from this Masonic courthouse right now. And he was like, okay, this case is going to go in front of a grand jury. And the grand jury will decide how to proceed with this case. And she says, if they disbelieve, they better not proceed. And he's like, okay, we're not setting a bond today. And she's like, why? You're not setting a bond today. Why is that? And he's like, this is not a bond hearing. 
you're not getting a bond today. And she was pissed. Like, her face was all scrunched up. And then she looks dead in the camera. She's like, Fox 5 looks dead in the camera. Let the Illuminati reptilian news media in here? Really? They are a member of the disbelieving public. All you Freemasons and Illuminati members in the courthouse, you are going to burn. Yo, the judge said, ma'am, they are the public. The public has a right to be here. I would, I'm not going to lie. I'd be like, why the fuck Fox 5 in here? Right. Making a mockery of me. Right. But she looked him dead in the eye. And the judge is like, okay, let's just try to get her checked out. Let's see if she's actually competent to stand trial. I don't know how quickly. It seemed like it came back very quickly. I'm not really sure if this was a very thorough exam. Because quickly it came back that she was competent to stand trial. And she got ready for trial. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial. Now... While she's awaiting trial, Sahara is writing notes to the judge from her cell. She's saying that Satan's agenda is to stop her from spreading the word and letting her have male seeds because her male child or male grandchild is going to change the world and Satan don't want that. According to Sahara, she's again punished for her sin of gluttony. She wrote in this letter that she promised Allah that she would stop eating candy and chocolate bars and because she did not stop The police are now accusing her of the murder of Jerry Wheeler. May Allah rest his soul. In it, she writes that she done went down to the family dollar. She done got a six packs of Reese's, two boxes of Dots, the little gummy candies, two packs of fun-sized Milky Ways, one pack of fun-sized Snickers, a pack of fun-sized Almond Joy. She said, I ate it all in one night. She said, except for the Dots, I ate that the next morning. But she was like, it was gluttonous. And I shouldn't have done it. And now look at the situation that I'm in. So as she's awaiting trial, she's been held at a mental facility in Milledgeville. And she ends up writing more letters to two different judges. The first one was dated August 5th, 2013, and was sent to Judge David Emerson. This letter was six pages long. And in this letter, she apologizes for her actions in his courtroom at the preliminary hearing. And... She goes on to express her conspiracies about how corrupt the judicial system is. And he writes her back and says, Hi, I was not your judge at the preliminary hearing, but I'll be sure to forward this letter to the intended recipient. So the second letter she wrote, it was dated September 17th of 2013. And she sent this one to Judge William Bo McClain. Now, this letter was 16 pages long. And in it, she asked to be released. And she said she just could not understand why the judge is doing this to her. She said she shouldn't be in jail. She should be given an ankle monitor because she needs to share, quote, the health knowledge of God with the nation of America. Over and over, she's saying how she's got to go home so she can lose weight. She said this child is a witch hunt against her. Basically how a lot of things move too fast in the investigative process, in her opinion. Then she wrote a letter on March 11th of 2014, and she sends it to Judge McLean again. She is still not saying that she's sorry for the crime or remorseful, but continues these accusations, the conspiracies. She has now, in this letter, insulted both her plea hearing judge and this judge. In the letter, she has called him a filthy, nasty, low-down, law-breaking, pathetic, scum-dog, rat snake. She said, you're a criminal in a black you cape. you a low-down, dirty dog. That's what you are. I'm telling you. And she said that there would be a holy war. She also stated that she would not be working with her attorneys, Wesley Wolverton and Jim Keeger, because they are 
atheist. Now, the court record lists her attorney as Eric Johnson, but she's already sent the letter to a wrong judge. So who knows if this was her previous attorney or if she's just calling out random people. Now, the kind of spooky thing about this is that the ADA, McDade, who was assigned to her case, started having health problems right before her trial date. He ends up going through five surgeries and was in the ICU for more than a month. And then he went back in for surgery when they found out that he had circulation issues. And they thought they were going to have to cut off both his legs. And this ultimately led to his retirement in April of 2014. Like, she's in judge awaiting this trial since July 17, 2013. So in less than a year, because this happened in April of 2014, this man has fallen so ill, has to do so many surgeries. And in one of her letters, she says, you think David McDade's sickness is a coincidence? Did I not tell you that Allah told me to tell you that he was fed up with the Douglas County, Georgia judicial system and that he will again visit Douglasville with another unrelenting chastisement? I told y'all. She said that destruction would come to the courthouse and continue to make threats against the judge. Now, it's September 22nd, 2014, and we are finally at trial. Sahara goes to to trial, and she's wearing a brown studded hijab. Now, it looks like that she let her lawyers do something, but really not much while the trial was going on. And what's crazy is that it's very hard to find out what actually happened during the trial. So maybe she was right, and the government is trying to cover it up. Or maybe Ron Swanson is right, but... Either way, in case y'all haven't now, caught on, Mara's watching Parks and Rec. Now, the prosecution argues that on the evening of June 18th, Sahara was very overwhelmed with guilt about being obese. She is obsessing over her religion and she ends up having a breaking point. And through that rage, she decides that she is going to leave her home, walk right next door and kill her neighbor, whom she believed was a police officer. During the trial, Jerry's family was not feeling great at all. If the prosecution was talking on the desk in the courthouse, they'll have like your pins, your Sharpies, everything you need, your water, whatever, everything you need to do your trial. She was taking the Sharpies and like coloring in her fingernails with the Sharpie. She was taking the Sharpie, just openly sniffing it while the prosecution is talking. So laughing rolling her eyes and at this point like you already killed my dad husband grandfather for seemingly no reason and now you sitting here just smelling sharpies and she ain't care but the trial actually lasted i think the trial began on the 22nd and then it ended on the 29th they go through every single detail of this murder and she is found guilty of first degree murder armed robbery and burglary Her sentencing was quick. She was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. She is now housed at the Pulaski State Prison. And till this day, she says that she is 100% innocent. There haven't been any files for appeals. I'm sure she's not wanting to work with any lawyers to get that done. And not really sure what she's doing inside the prison, but she will be there for the rest of her days. Oh, I'm sure she's entertaining somebody. Yeah, for sure. Now, Jerry's family when they reflect on it, they're just like, I can't believe, like, never in a million years 
did I think that something like this would happen to our family? And you don't think that something like this is going to happen to you. It's really unfathomable. Even when we're like sitting here talking about it on a podcast, it's still something that just seems so unfathomable. Like and, not me. Yeah, not me, people, not my not family. Me. Right. And that's how his family feels as well. Like the fact that it wasn't, he didn't have any long-term beef. This was a stranger. Like those random attacks, those are the random attacks to me are the most scariest because like if I got beef with somebody and they come up and we start to fight, like there's a, you know who did it. But if it's random, if I don't know you, if I've done nothing to you, why me? Why our family? Absolutely. Now, Sahara, her mom spoke. Her mom, Barbara, was like, listen, my daughter is not a murderer. All she does is go to prayer service. She goes to prayer service. She comes home. She puts in applications for a job. That's it. And they were like, she was threatening people in the courtroom. My daughter wasn't threatening anyone in the courtroom. She was upset. And she felt like there was injustice here in Douglas County. And that's all she was saying. She was saying that there is injustice and that God is watching you. So... How could that happen? How could she do this? She don't know anybody over there. She can barely walk to the mailbox. If she can barely walk to the mailbox, how is she going to fight and murder a man? There's no motive. How are you going to find her guilty of murder when there is no motive? And she's still standing by her daughter's side, stood by her daughter's side, and says that Douglas County really just tried to amp up the charges on her. She was just letting them know that God was watching you. And that is the story of Sahara and her very supportive mother. All right, y'all, it's time for... Well, I'm not black. I'm OJ. I didn't do it, but if I did, this is how I would have got away with it. I didn't do it, but if I did, I'm not walking in blood barefoot. I think her best bet would have been to, like, wear some shoes and put, like, that little, like, a plastic bag over them or something. You don't have a footprint, really. It's going to smear and stuff. I think that would be your best bet. Yeah. I didn't do it, but if I did, she still, she wiped off the murder weapon. She clearly tried to clean it, but you gotta get up knives like on the backside or get back. They took the knife apart, like even the handle. It's down in there, girl. You gotta get rid of your weapon. There is a screw on that knife that will take off the handle nine times out of ten, maybe eight times out of ten, but you know, or get rid of the fucking knife. Or if it, yeah, but if it's just your real good knife that you just so have to have. You better bust it down, clean it out. Right. It's a hard one. Because she's loco. I ain't do it, but if I did, I would have let a lawyer fight for me. Because if everybody is asking if I'm crazy, then I must be crazy. Like, I didn't even see anything that showed the outcomes of what... It was quick. She was found competent. The judge asked for it. Right. And did it. And so that just makes shows me that... There was something that y'all missed or that y'all didn't care to really look into. Because I was Googling, I ain't no doctor, but like schizophrenia, things like that, they show up for women in their, according to Google, according to my one Google, the number one search when I Googled, for all you smarty pants, they say that it comes up for women between like 25 and late 20s, early 30s. And that's the age range that she was in. Maybe y'all should have just checked her out. I had an aunt who was schizophrenic and she had journals. And when I'm telling you, she wrote in these journals, left to right, top to bottom, spin it around some more. She ran out of journals. She had papers. It was on the walls. Like, they will write. They've got a lot swirling up in their head, and they have got to get it out. And so they're talking about she had journals upon journals on this cluttered desk, and it's all conspiracy theories and shit, and all this, like, this in your head, saying all this shit to you. Yeah. 
I think she's got something going on. Yeah, and they never really gave her a thorough checkup. Also, like, if they weren't talking about conspiracy theories, they were just strictly her talking about herself. And I feel like even that would have been something that she could have used in court. Like, there's clearly a, a disconnect between what I see for myself and what I want for myself, and that makes me upset. That makes me angry. That needs to be checked out by a medical professional, not two podcasters Googling shit. You know what I'm saying? So... Yeah, I don't know. I just, I feel like, how do I feel? Tell me. I feel like I've seen, I've been in contact or seen stories of people that are schizophrenic and they have these very huge attachments to religion. And most of the time, what I've noticed in my limited knowledge, I'm not a smart person, is that most of these people, they like pray and they study on their own. And I just feel like with any religion, like you're supposed to have somebody to guide you through like you not supposed to know everything unless you're actually called by God but then most people think they are called by God I just feel like if you were having these feelings even if you don't go like like, this is black folks so even if you felt like you needed to talk to somebody and not a therapist you could talk to your religious leader about the feelings that you have for yourself I'm feeling like gluttony is this and this but also there was a cult there was a white cult ran by a white lady that made people starve themselves Because she said that gluttony was a sin. There's a documentary about that. Did you see it? I'm Mm going to find it and send it to you. Okay. You just need some. And then hopefully if it's a good religious leader that really cares about you and is not toxic, they'll give you a scripture to read and a medical professional recommendation. I blabbered on for a minute. Sorry. No, you're fine. Que esto, que esto. Damn, there was another thing I was going to let her lawyer handle. I ain't do it, but if I did. I would have had my lawyers push it on the sun. I feel like she could have put reasonable doubt on the sun because everybody loves to play the you didn't act worried enough for me card. His whole, the amount of blood at the crime scene with him being an officer, I felt like he should have known and he probably could have just been trying to like make himself feel better. But I really feel like a good lawyer could have pushed that angle for you. So like one, let your lawyers help. Two, make a tactic to push push the blame on him to create reasonable doubt. Oh, I guess his feet didn't yeah. fit. He was ruled out. His feet didn't match. I would. She could have said, I heard a, a commotion over there, and so I went over to see. Something. Something. Allah called me over there and told me to check it out. When I got so scared, I came back to the house and decided to stay quiet. Boom. And I don't trust police, so mm-hmm. no, I didn't call 911. Mm-hmm. I ain't do it, but if I did, I would have probably tried to get a, rid of at least the burglary or the robbery charge one of them because you broke into the house okay there also wasn't a sign of forced entry so that's to think about you could have been welcome into the house that's not breaking in he had his wallet his wallet was still found at the scene of the crime if i'm trying to rob you i'm going to take your money right 900 cash was in that wallet still standing at the scene of the crime wasn't moved then of course the car right so there is an attempted there's an attempted but i didn't get away with it right so is there an attempted yeah i'm sure there are I would have tried to lessen those charges. Some kind of thing. Yeah, something. But the, the moral of the story is use your lawyers. Yes. Okay. All right. Parole or no parole? I'm at the no parole. I'll approve her to get moved to a mental facility, but that's about it. Yeah. And I honestly doubt that she would want to go, but I would approve that as well. Oh, no, Buki, you got to stay right there. All right. That's the end of the show. 
All right, you guys, let's read some reviews. Y'all reviews mean so much to us. So much. Every time that you say kind words, they just make my heart go pitter pat. This one is from Juice. Juice says, I'm choosing to leave my review here as I listen to your show on Spotify. Yes, I gave it a five-star rating. I am so glad I found this podcast as I am an avid true crime listener. I mean, I put it on TV at night just to fall asleep. I love, love, love this podcast because you are blackity black black when telling the stories. I love the commentary, the breakouts and song mid-sentence, and my favorite, take that ish to trial, but you put hoes, bit. I have found myself blaring this out at random times with no shame. Listening to you all is like listening to my bestie, and I talk about whatever true crime episode we done found. Keep up the good work, ladies. Can't wait for y'all to take the show on the road because I'm buying my ticket. FYI, there are a lot of black folks up here in Seattle, so don't forget about us when you start doing live shows. Let me know something. You better make sure Seattle know. Okay, Seattle, you better check in. Y'all better tune in, because I'm going to look at the stats, and whoever's playing it the most, y'all better get y'all cities to represent. Okay. I'm looking at the top five. Who's it going to be? Y'all better talk to Taz. Okay, this one says, best podcast and host, five stars. I've been listening to Sisters Who Kill for almost a year, and of course I binge every episode within a couple of months. I've started re-listening to episodes since it's hard to wait for the weekly drop. I played a couple of episodes during our family road trip from Orlando to Atlanta, and it sparked very interesting conversation. My dad and aunt are hooked to the show. My mom is hooked too, but she can't figure out how to use the app without me. Keep bringing amazing content and your authentic selves. I'd give more stars if I could. Thank you, girl. Thank you. And see, that's the thing. Nobody knows where the podcast app is. You know what you're going to have to do? You probably can do it for Spotify, but I know you can do it for Apple. You need to set up a widget, right? And then if you subscribe her to it, when the new episode drops, it's going to suggest it on that widget. And then all she have to do is pick play. There was a podcast that Taz and I talked to. We can leave their name out. And they said that when they started, they went to, they had a booth at like the local fair. And it literally just had their podcast name up top. And they were just teaching people how to use the app, the, the podcast app on their phone. Because that seems to be the problem. When I be telling people, I be like, yeah, I'm going to put my podcast right here. Okay, I got the notification. So you're going to get a notification. And you press play. Okay. It be the ones who you show how to do it. And then the, the very next time you need to show them again and again. And be like, listen, if you can't learn, then you can't learn. I've been trying to teach no, my grandmother. How to answer FaceTime. Just answer it. I'll call you. Just slide the button across. It's been a good three months. And she has to call her sister in for help every time. It's a whole ordeal. And woman, I am just trying to see your face. <laughs> I just be wanting to show her something like, because if I show her pictures, she won't know how to pull it up. So I'll be trying to share my screen. Don't get me in the sharing screen. <sighs> I'll be like, uh, do, you, do you see where it says I'm sharing my screen? Just click it. It's not working, and you're not clicking it. Gotta love them. All right, y'all. That's the end of our show. If you want to keep up with us, do it. You absolutely should. There are plenty of ways that you can do that, too. I don't know. You can tweet us. If you... Oh, sorry. You can X us. Sisters Who Kill. You can follow us on TikTok, Sisters Who Kill Podcast. (laughs) Instagram, Sisters Who Kill Pod. They're on Facebook, Sisters Who Kill Podcast. You like that. And there is also on Facebook a private discussion group where we just get into the nitty gritty and people just talk. Sisters Who Kill Podcast, private discussion group. I think that's what it's called. You have to answer questions to get in. And if you don't, like, I won't let you in. All right. That's all. Anything else from you? Talk to Sweet Talk Babe.